good people, we're back with another episode of the No Good People podcast. And as many of you know, I enjoy celebrating good people and shining a spotlight on their achievements. I also enjoy sharing information that will enhance our understanding of the world around us and motivate us to keep moving forward. I trust that my conversation with today's guests will motivate us all to keep moving forward. The year was 1970. The place was Syracuse University. And on that campus, a group of black student athletes boycotted the university football spring training program until it addressed their allegations of racism, demanding better and equal academic and medical treatment, as well as a diverse coaching staff. Later known as the Syracuse Eight, this group risked their playing careers to create change and make history. I'm excited to chat with a member of the Syracuse Eight, Mr. John Loban. Born and raised in Hartford, he earned his undergraduate degree in history from Syracuse in 1973. In 2005, he was appointed by the governor to the Connecticut Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities and retired after 29 years from the state of Connecticut as a senior vice president of the Connecticut Development Authority. John has served many roles on a long list of organizations and committees throughout his career, including the NAACP, Bloomfield Building Committee, Spanish American Center, Bloomfield Inland Wetland and Water Courses, Outstanding Young Americans, the Knox Foundation, and Connecticut Commission on Children. In addition, he is the recipient of many awards and recognitions for his efforts. Now, I could keep talking, but then you never hear John tell his fascinating history-making story. So without further hesitation, please welcome my friend, John Loban. Thank you, John, for being here. Thank you, Vera, for the invitation. How are you doing today? Great? I'm doing fine. You know, I'm blessed and able to uh, be able to tell the story, a living story at this point in time of my journey. And I thank you for that invitation. Uh, you did do some research on that, I see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but yeah, I am... Uh, what I think um, one of those individuals that chose to understand some of the comments that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King expressed in those early days. You know, as, as mm -hmm. I was a graduate at Weaver High School in 1968, when Martin was assassinated. Mm -hmm. That was a tremendous time for me personally, but also I think for this country. And what he did was inspirational in relationship to who and who I would become, or as better mm -hmm. I would say, my who you. Um, and that was that, uh, you know, we, we are here and we're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have to be able to one, uh, be participants in change that has an impact on everyone. And I grew up with not under the we environment, not the me. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. all that I've done 
in my journey is related to we, because I believe that we all touch each other in some form of fashion, but I also believe that, you know, uh, I cannot do it alone. Absolutely. And so, and so with that, one of my uh, mentors, which I think most people who are within this environment, uh, within the Harford County environment, um, was uh, Walter Doc Hurley. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, and he, um, um, I got to know and work with him when he was trying to one, inspire. And what he did that particular year in 1968, when um, um, we, the riots occurred. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, you know, there was getting ready to be some upheaval at Weaver High School. Okay. And the administration didn't know how to curb that. And so uh, I guess wisdom came to be because they chose to go and get Doc Hurley to come to Weaver. At that point in time, he was at, at the Jones School. And so they got him to come to Weaver to try to quell the unrest. Okay, got it. <laughs> I will never forget what he did that day when he stood on the front steps of the entrance of the school. And these words stuck with me when he said, we are not going to tear down our school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that hit me like a, a, a ton of bricks because even though he was a graduate, had moved on with his life and career, he still considered Weaver High School our school. Got it. Makes so, sense. Yes. So with that, we chose not to destroy but go across the street, <coughs> excuse me, to Keeney Park and have our, 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 our program talking about, you know, what, what that day, that assassination meant to us. Mm. So that to me was when he used the word, we are not going to tear down our school made me understand it's about all of us. That's right, that's right. And so with that, um, I was in the process of uh, not knowing if I was on my way to college. Uh, I grew up in Bellevue Square in the north end of Hartford, raised by a single parent. My mother was a uh, a transfer transport from Montgomery, Alabama to here. Mm -hmm. Like you know, that southern migration. Yes. Uh, at that time in the fifties, uh, and 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 you know, uh, so with that, uh, you know, you know, I I I was born and raised in Hartford, so I had no understanding of that environment, but I did begin to feel it because in my younger days I used to sit down when 
the elders used to sit on the porches. I don't that don't happen anymore, but when the elders sat on the porch and started to tell the stories. Mm -hmm. And when they told the stories, I I almost like transplanted myself into the story where I could feel them. I can mm. understand the pain and the suffering, the indifference that was um, they had encountered. But I was now in a location where it didn't seem that difficult. But you know, being at that point, being somewhat young and naive, um, I took that you know what they experienced based on the segregation. I was saying integration. Saying that, yeah, that's what I saw because at that point in time, the neighborhood was very diverse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so with it being diverse, you know, uh, did, didn't, I had no fears of the other. Got it. And so with that, I uh, in turn uh, start to understand that I need to have a place. Hmm. A place that I can now uh, uh, um, control myself that uh, and also, you know, be beneficial for others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying to you is this here. <clears throat> I was going to quit school. Hmm, really? Yes. And my mom's convinced me otherwise because she said, I only have a seventh grade education and you need the 12th, 12 grades in order to run, make a living. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let me, I'm also, uh, I also have an older sister and I had a, a twin brother who's since passed. Okay. But so it was, it was the three of us. So when she told me, she said, look, I've only got seven grades. So I know what you need to do in order to one, uh, to be, to make a living in this environment. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I had a great love for her. And I saw how hard she was working that I wanted to help her out. So that's why I thought that maybe I need to quit school, get a job and help with the household. But she convinced me not to do that. And, 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 and with my experience with her, as I move forward, um, I realized that she may have had a seventh grade education based on education, mm -hmm. but she had a PhD in life. That's because, right. Okay, because with that, uh, uh, she influenced me to go ahead do my studies and focus on uh, my athletics, uh, which is, was more so the, the, the game that I loved the most was football. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I went ahead and went back and, and continued in school mm -hmm. and uh, had a, uh, you know, a, a, a very successful football career at Weaver High School. Uh, by being a, in my senior year, being a co-captain and uh, winning the state championship for Weaver High School. 
in 67, as well as an all-state uh, honoree. So knowing that I, I succeeded in what I attempted to do as a football player, uh, I thought now I'm a senior, I'm, now I got to get ready to go, go, to, go to work. Mm -hmm. And what, what, what surprised me and more so surprised her was I got a, a coach from the University of Colorado came to my home on Mill Avenue, or well namely Mall Avenue, but we all <laughs> would call it Mall Avenue. So um, came and sat in, in my living room and told my mother that they wanted me to attend the University of Colorado. And knowing that I, if I had to pay to go to school, I wasn't going to school. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay. we didn't have, you know, the luxury of having that type of money to even attend schools right. at that time. So that in itself um, gave her uh, a, a sense of accomplishment. Now, I, I, everything that I did, I did for her. Mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted her never to feel as though she wasn't a contributing to who I became. Right, right. So with that, and then I, 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 I went to visit the University of uh, Colorado. Mm -hmm. They brought me out to visit the campus. And that's the first time in my life I was, I was ever on a plane. When I was 18 years old, I was on a plane. That's the first time. And this was 1969, 68? 68, 1968. Okay. And that was, that was unique in itself because I first bought, I couldn't believe how the thing stayed in the air. Right. <laughs> okay. So I went out to the University of Colorado, visited the campus, fell in love with it, came back, and they were offering me a scholarship to go there. Mm -hmm. About, I want to say maybe a week or two later, one of my teammates came and said to me, uh, John, there's a coach from Syracuse looking for you. And I said, there's no coach from Syracuse looking for me. He said, yes, there are. He's down in the coach's office. So I politely said, well, you know, if it's not a coach down there, you know what I'm going to do when I see you again. <laughs> so um, I went on down to the uh, uh, um, coach's office and when I got down there, sure enough, was a coach from Syracuse. And at that point, uh, the word had even got around the school. Oh. John was a coach from Syracuse was speaking to me. And so I was at all. And so they 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 chose to invite me to go to go to the campus uh, later on in that uh, that spring. Um, to visit the campus and I'm at all because um, this was going to give me an opportunity to attend a university that one of my favorite players had attended. Mm -hmm. which is That's right, Jim Brown. Yeah. So um, and I think this is when um, I understood that now I can go someplace that has stature, 
um, that is, you know, uh, well known, but also, like I said, following the footsteps of my favorite player, Jim Brown. Mm -hmm. Well, I made a visit that weekend, that weekend to go to Syracuse. And I flew to Syracuse once again, the second time now on a plane, a little bit different than the plane I flew out to Colorado. Um, I don't know, a lot of people got to be a little older to understand that I flew on a Mohawk airplane. I don't know so, that. No, that's why I know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they, they were prop planes. Got okay? it. They were prop planes. As a matter of fact, on my flight to Syracuse, I could see the traffic on the roads because that's how high it flew. Okay. So I'm watching, looking at traffic on the roads on my way to Syracuse. So I get to Syracuse and um, I meet someone that I would never realize would be my best friend from that point till today, which would become my roommate. Okay. Uh, Greg Allen. Mm -hmm. He was from Plainfield, New Jersey. And so we met and we didn't know each other from Adam. And so, you know, we had the weekend, the ball players that were on the team, <coughs> excuse me, mm -hmm. the ball players that were on the team, um, there were like five of them that were black. Okay. So we assume based on, you know, meeting those guys that there might be a, quite a few black ball players at Syracuse. And I'll get into further details as I get through this this point here. That's great, because I have questions about that. So good, please. Okay, okay. So me and Greg meet. We have, we, 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 we visit. We get to understand and know each other. And Sunday morning is when you go to um, see the, the coach, because they're going to ask you the question. Are you interested in attending uh, Syracuse? Mm -hmm. Before we went to to the, at this point, it's, it's called Manly Fieldhouse, um, to see the coach, me and Greg had a conversation. And the conversation went like this. Are you coming? My comment back is, I'll come if you come. He says, no, I'll come if you come. <laughs> I stated then, I guess we're coming. We made the decision to send, to, to attend, Syracuse University that Sunday morning. And was a scholarship already offered at that point? No, that was that was the invitation to see whether or not we would accept okay. the, 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 the invite to attend Syracuse. And once we said yes, then that's when the scholarships were offered. Okay. And with that, um, we began our career um, at, at Syracuse. And I'm going to give you some very interesting points in relationship to once we made that decision and we showed up at Syracuse um, that, uh, uh, that fall for the program, um, which these days, you know, they don't do it anymore. We had to play freshman football. There's mm -hmm. no more freshman football within the collegiate environment. But then you had to play freshman football before you could play varsity. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So we, um, um, you know, we, 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 we went to school in August, which is, you know, normally, uh, the, the beginning of the, the, the training mm-hmm. for your, for your fall season. So we, we went ahead, we met up. This was a very interesting part. When me and Greg got to Syracuse, all the previous ball players could pick their roommate. Well, we were at a time that the environment was more of the push was tried to now uh, integrate predominantly white institutions with minority athletes. Okay. So we on the we was on the prefaces of that time period. Mm-hmm. So uh, and so with that, you would think that they're 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 trying to justify some some the integrational move. Okay. Right. Well, when me and Greg got there, we didn't become roommates. We had they gave us two white roommates. And but the class before us, all the other black ball players, they were rooming together. So I guess this was to to, to try to to make that push of you know integration per se. Um and so um we just didn't feel comfortable with that, but what choice did we have? So my freshman year, uh we had two different roommates. Um and then at that particular point in time, uh, you know, like you're saying, that we, we were trying to fit into uh, an environment that was basically not prepared for this. Right. And um, so what we did was, okay, we, like we said, we had no choice. So we went ahead and did what we had to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we socialized, you know, uh, um, you know, with each other, I mean, we slept in different rooms, but we socialized while we were awake. Right. So we didn't lose that that connection because that's what we we chose to come there together. So mm-hmm. we chose to do things together. Well, in our freshman year, um, you know, as I stated, you know, we we he was a wing back and I was a, recruited as a defensive player. And so when I was recruited, I, I, in high school, I played both ways. I played center and middle linebacker in high mm-hmm. school. Uh, Greg was a wing back or tailback for at, for Plainfield High School, but Greg was also he also ran track uh, and very I mean very fast too. And so uh, when I got there, they said to me that they wanted me even though I was recruited for defense they needed me to play center for the freshman team and I I made a comment well I thought I was going to play defense well what they did was they recruited a a ball player a center that was too short for the quarterbacks they they recruited the quarterbacks were like 6'2", 6'3", center was like 5'7". They couldn't squat that low. 
and they knew I played center in high school. So they said, John, we need you to go play center. I said, well, it's your dime. I'll do whatever you want me to do. So I played center my freshman year. And I'm going to tell you uh, 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 what the concept was in those days and maybe somewhat today as well. But so <clears throat> I played center my freshman year. But as part of the front end, they always, they used to, what they did was as part of their uh, uh, introduction to the program, uh, they would also have uh, after practice, um, they would put us, or we go to the dining hall. Uh, we had our own dining hall per se. Uh, they would now, um, they call, you know, like they call hazing and all this other stuff, but it's not mm -hmm. really. Um, they would have us, have us, have the freshmen stand on a table and the coaches would be against the wall and they would in turn, the, the, the varsity players would harass you. And so they had me and Greg stand on the table. And when we stood on the table, the first thing they wanted us to do, they said, you know, John, sing your school song. Now, I told him I didn't know. <laughs> so they said to Greg, sing your school song. And he said he didn't know his either. So the next piece of harassment was, well, let me see you dance. So I said, I can't dance either. So they said the same thing to Greg and he responded the same way. And then they said, okay, then let me see you hold his hand. And I told him, I'm not gonna hold a man's hand. And so they said to Greg, you hold his hand. He said, I'm not holding his hand either. Well, it took us, and then the comments were made, oh, we got two tough guys here. Oh, we'll take care of that. So fine, do whatever you got to do. So, mm -hmm. you know, we got on the table. The next day in practice, this was supposedly to teach he and I a lesson. So what they did was uh, they brought a varsity player to come up and compete against me on a one-on-one -on -one blocking tackling drill. And um, normally you do it two times. So I was a blocker and, and, and the defensive player, he came over, he was supposed to tackle what they call a running back. And I was supposed to prevent him from doing that. Well, the first two times they did that, the defensive player never touched the running back. So they said, let's do it again. So I said, well, fine. I, I thought we only do it two times, but if you want to do it three times, let's do it. So we did it a third time. <clears throat> so he, the third time he did tackle the guy, but it's like five yards. And so I made the comment, well, two fives equals 10. That's a first down. So they mm -hmm. told, they told, this was an All-American that they was selecting as All-American that they brought over to teach me a lesson. So they told him to go back to the varsity. So I made the comment. I said, he's an All-American. And they said, yeah, John, he's an All-American. I said, well, if he's All-American, I know I'm going to be one. And the coach wasn't that far away from me when he heard that. Mm -hmm. So they cringed. 
because I wasn't biting my tongue, okay? I came here to play football and play the best football I could ever play. My roommate, they tried to teach him a lesson by, and you, you may not know this, but any athlete who may hear this will know, they put him in the bull in the ring where the players could come at him from any position and try to knock his block off. And wow. So, but he proved himself. So at the end of that, Pete, when after that event, the coach said to him, Greg, I didn't know you could hit like that. And Greg responded, you didn't ask either. And so those were two events our freshman year that, that occurred that was now, you're not feeling a little comfortable here, okay? Mm -hmm. Why we mm -hmm. being singled out here? It's because we didn't do what they said they wanted us to do. And, I, and just to add just a little bit to this, we have over the years, we've come to a realization what happened then, we put it in the example of, they, was, they wanted us to act like a vaudeville act. Mm -hmm. Okay? Singing, dancing, and holding hands. Okay? That's the conclusion we came to, how that's what they wanted to, us to do, and we didn't oblige them. So they were trying to, in turn, teach us a lesson. Well, we taught them a lesson. We can play this game. Right. So, so our freshman year, I started center and Greg was like a tailback. We won all five of our games. Uh, we were undefeated 5-0 and as a freshman team. And so this is when you start to get a feel and you almost will understand, as I tell you this, that they always make predictions on based on who is going to come from the freshman team and maybe a starting varsity player. My name was in the mix and this other individual was Joe Ehrman, who eventually played for the Baltimore Colts. He did, I think, 15 years in the NFL. Okay. So, so when it came to my sophomore year, the center that they had was a senior. He was like maybe 5'9", maybe 180. Mm -hmm. I'm 6'2", about 230. So, <coughs> excuse me. The, but they decided that he should stay at center and they chose to move me back to defense. And I'm saying, well, why did you have me play center then? Right. If you was not going to use me as a center on the varsity. Because I thought where you, where you come in at, that's where you will, you know, the position you would play. Mm -hmm. But uh, let, me, let me backtrack for a, a quick moment here. Sure, sure. Uh, what happened was in my freshman year, even though I was playing center, they let me play middle linebacker in a practice one day. And in this practice, um, I made a, a play, or as they say, I made a hit on one of my teammates 
who will be one of the Syracuse eight. At that point, his name was Al Newton. He's now Alif Mohammed. Um, he was a fullback. So I hit him so hard that it stopped the entire practice because it echoed throughout the field. And for years, they used to call that particular play that I did the defining moment of the freshman team. And I never realized what they were talking about when they said that. Um, but I, 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 uh, they also did was when the head coach believed that the play was a fluke, he'd run it again. I wasn't aware of that. And what happened was when I hit him so hard, I actually broke the skin on my nose. So I was bleeding. And so one of my teammates, freshman teammates, we had a reunion some years later. And he said, uh, let me tell you about the defining moment of the freshman team. That's when it came to me what that defining moment was. Well, they ran the same <laughs> They ran the same play again and had the same results. That was the first and only time I ever played middle linebacker for Syracuse. The only, first and only. First and only time I ever played middle linebacker. So that's, so I'm, I'm trying to build a story here. Yes. To, you know, how things materialize and, and what happened is, is we start to move forward. So uh, the, the, the fullback, Al Newton, at that point, went back to the coach and said to the coach said to him, Al, you let a freshman hit you like that? And Al, and he told me, he, I just heard this most recently. He said, told the coach, he can play. So let him know, no, it's not a fluke that I hit him the way I did. So. But like I said, that was my one and only time that I ever played middle linebacker at Syracuse University, even though I played it uh, four years at Weaver and, uh, and, and center four years at Weaver as well. So like I said, when we got to our sophomore year, uh, they chose to put me back on defense, but not at linebacker. They chose to put me at a defensive end which is basically a, a, a different position as it relates to a linebacker. A linebacker has an attack mentality. A defensive end is more passive because you have to protect the outside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I've had it drilled in my head for all these years, I'm an attacker. I had to learn to make that adjustment at a defensive end. Well, my sophomore year, I, even though I wasn't the starting boxing center, I was a starting defensive end. There were five black ball players, <coughs> excuse me, five black ball players that were starters in 1969. Mind you, there were only 10 black ball players on the entire program. Got it, got it. That's the most they ever had in the history of the school at that point, was 10. A lot of people may assume there were a lot of black ball players attending Syracuse with Jim Brown, uh, Ernie Davis, mm -hmm. Floyd Little, 
No, that was it. Was we were the largest class ever in the history of the school since 1898 when athletics started at Syracuse University. And so you only had very few black ball players. I would say on average, probably um, no more than three or four at any given time. So really? with that, yes. <clears throat> so with that, um, you know, like I said, we were the largest class. So it was five of us starting at that point. Myself, Bucky McGill was another defensive end. Dwayne Spoonwalker was a, 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 def, a defensive back. Greg Allen, my roommate, and Al Newton at that point on offense. Okay. So it was five out of the 10 starting. So the season started. And what happened was, as the season started, I was the first one to get benched as a starter. And so it, it, it aggressively went where we were all starting to get benched. And, and, and what we eventually found out many years later, there was an in, un, unwritten rule for athletics at Syracuse. It's called the two for rule. The two for rule was you could not have any more than two black ball players on the field mm. at any mm. time. Okay. Well, remember I said it was three of us on defense? Right. Okay. It was one too many. Well, the other two ball players were class in front of me. So I was a sophomore, they were juniors. So it would probably be easier for them to bench me than it would be for to bench them, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. So um, when that when that happened, um, but what I eventually later found out, and which has has became a, a, a rule that has been uh, 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 disseminated in a sense of with with the with the two for rule. Um, some of the ball players, and predominantly most of the white ball players, had what they call sponsors or benefactors. In other words, they had individuals that were supporting the program okay. through contributions. Got it. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, if they get if they go to a coach and say, "Hey, you know, these one of the people that I'm I'm supporting," you know, um, you know, if you're not going to, you know play them then you know I'll pull my my contributions back I didn't have one the player that replaced me had one and it's ironic that same player was from the state of Connecticut as well I don't know really? what was but that's how he got to replace me okay that's when I started to see that you know this ain't about the best players this is about the politics of it. Right. Okay. Under that, as I stated about that twofer rule, and, you know, it's in our book relative to how that materialized, and it had been in existence for 40 years. 40 you know, Ron, years? 40 years. At that point, it was in existence 
for 40 years. Jim Brown talks about it. Because Jim, <coughs> Jim Brown was football, basketball, and lacrosse. And lacrosse, that's right. Mm -hmm. One of the best lacrosse players in the world, okay? Um, well, Jim played basketball. And there were three black ball players on the basketball team. Jim could, they all should have been starting, but what did I tell you? The right. two for rule. Two, yep. Okay. So Jim was on the bench. When Jim came in, he would have to replace one of the black ball players. So you would never have any three, you would only have two at any given time. Mm -hmm. Well, Jim refused to do that and chose to quit. So Jim stopped playing basketball because of that. And there was only, and he was the only black person on the lacrosse team, correct? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. He was lacrosse. He was, that's right, that's why I read that. He was lacrosse. He was lacrosse, okay? And a lot of people don't know that, and they, they look at Jim as one of them, the, the football player. Um, but Jim, if there was pro lacrosse, Jim would have played lacrosse and not football. So, Jim was recruited from Long Island. Um, and Jim always thought that he was there on a football scholarship. But Jim didn't realize, and not till years later, that Jim was, they, Jim got recruited for lacrosse, but played football. Two doctors on Long Island paid for Jim tuition for two years. Then they gave him a scholarship for football. Jim had a great experience with uh, Vince Swaswaller when, because um, uh, Swaswaller didn't like Jim Brown. And one of our teammates, John Godbolt, who was from Bridgeport, Connecticut, who went to Bassett High, was an awesome athlete. Well, Swartzwaller didn't like Jim Brown, and he compared John Gapo to Jim Brown. And this a story <clears throat> that I would tell you that reflects that dislike for John Gapo. But Jim Brown, so uh, uh, Swartzwaller said to Jim, "You're not gonna play. You're not gonna play football. You're not gonna play again." So Jim said, "Fine." So Jim went to practice that 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 particular day, and Jim started knocking ball players out. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Walswater said, "Jim, Jim, what you doing?" He said, "If I'm not playing, ain't nobody playing." Walswater said, "Just stop knocking my players out. You can play." That's how Jim started to play football again. Okay, so you can see. The, the various things that are occurring. Yeah. And even even if you look at the Express, the Ernie Davis movie, mm -hmm. the Express, that's a movie. Okay. And you know, we always they talk about, well, you know, you got to be creative when you're doing a movie. Because some of that stuff wasn't a reality. Mm -hmm. We know it. We understood it. Because we did have me and my 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 buddy Greg had an opportunity to go to the premiere of that and, and and what we saw was there was some truthism in there 
but there was some fakery as well. So, right. um, so like I said, they were making a movie. So, um, so when we when we experienced our sophomore year, um, and, and and ironically, to date, my roommate Greg holds the the return record for Syracuse University mm. that we had against against Penn State. He returned in one game 172 yards of punt returns for Syracuse that day, <coughs> which is still the record for wow. Syracuse University. Okay. So, you know, we had we could we could contribute to the program. And so once we, you know, but at that point in time, uh, you know, we were still being hampered by the system. But in 1969, this is an important period, as I talked to you, said to you about John Godbo, how he compared him to Jim Brown. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is what happened. We were playing the University of Wisconsin, Big Ten School. So when we went to University of Wisconsin, the first time in the history of Syracuse football, they had three black ball players in the backfield at one time. And, and, and in that game, each one of them scored two touchdowns. And you know, we beat we beat them well. And after that game, you know, you, you win, you celebrate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as we were celebrating, Vince Walswaller walked past John Godbo and made this statement. Have, a, have all the fun you want now because it's a short walk from the parlor to the outhouse. Wow. And that you want to talk about watching the oxygen come out of a person's body. That's when we saw John Godbo just whittle into, I would say at that point in time, nothing. Because he knew what that meant. Right. That you have your fun now because you're not going to have any fun later. And that actually, in turn, um, not only... Uh, 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 destroy him as a person, but it affected him mentally as well. Okay, because he saw that what he was there for um, was now going to be taken away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John was probably the one player that was relying on going to the NFL because John was born in Bridgeport. Father Panic Village, uh, you know, he, he was, he was, you know, we, you know, we all, you know, not all of us, but, you know, most of us didn't come from, you know, uh, well-to-do or less than middle-class families. Right. And John was in the poverty mode. You know, I understood the project because I, I came out of the project. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So, you know, so John was going to rely on that as a resource and a life for him. And, and Schwarzwaller just popped his dream big time. Um, so 
you know, we finish up the season, uh, you know, uh, where, you know, we realize something's wrong here. This is, this is not about uh, the best players, but you also have a cultural issue because remind me, I said on the front end, Mm -hmm. We were going places, and uh, oh, let me just restate something that I should have stated. What what I got from Martin Luther King and his uh, inspirational stuff that I took to heart, when he said, we got to go places we have never been. I could have gone to an HBCU, Virginia State, which is where my brother eventually went. But I took that as, at that point in time, we were trying to integrate the predominantly white institutions. Right. So I took, my, I took it on myself as being one of those pioneers to infiltrate that environment. And <clears throat> when, I, when we got to Syracuse, we came to realize they wasn't ready for it. They was in, in, in they weren't ready. They weren't ready yeah, at all. They, no, they were ready in conversation, mm-hmm. but they wasn't ready in action. Well, let's be clear about something though. Okay. Um, who who do you saying they were they were ready for the conversation? Because it doesn't really seem, even in reading the book, that Schwartzwalder was ever ready for the conversation, much ready for change, much less ready for change. Yes. Well, I, I'm saying that based on what the university and okay. concept us okay uh-huh okay that's no ben is a whole different story okay ben is a piece of it but remind me syracuse university is syracuse university okay so they got a bigger vision than that 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 focus that swaswater had because they were looking for the cause and effect and with that they in turn uh uh um were trying to be on the forefront of that concept of of bringing in more minority students. Okay. Okay. But yeah, that was in the thought process, but wasn't in the reality. Um, When I got to Syracuse University in 68, (coughs) excuse me, in 68, I, I had made an assumption that there was maybe 300 minority students on campus. Mm-hmm. And I had I had done uh, 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 about a year ago or left a podcast uh, where this guy interviewed me about what was going on in Syracuse and what I had encountered. And he said, no, John, it was only 150 minority students on Syracuse campus of 6,000. Where the hell is the immigration at here? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's 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 what I'm saying. They had it in the conversation, but it was not in the reality. Reality. Mm-hmm. Okay, of what they were achieving, or trying to achieve, or state they were trying to achieve. Well, you know that that didn't materialize until many years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the mindset throughout the country that you know we. And what they came to realize when Bear Bryant from the University of Alabama made the quote that Sam Naham Cunningham 
from USC played against the University of Alabama. And he ran them in the ground. And Bear Bryant made a statement after that that we got to get the get we got to get some of those. And everybody's saying, <laughs> what is those? You gotta get some of them colors. He said, Well, you know, we got the big, he said, No, y'all ain't understanding this. You're not gonna be able to win without them. Bear Bryant became one of the first coaches white coaches to understand mm -hmm. you don't have black ball players you're not gonna win you're not gonna have championships that's right and now look at the university of alabama mm -hmm. you got to find the white ball players on the university of alabama you sure do okay so you know that's when when uh when when what's the name i i, I can't call his name the governor when he said, ain't nobody, nobody black coming into this university. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, you look at it now. So, yeah, but that, that took decades to get there, okay? Right. No, it did, definitely, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, 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 so at that point in time, you know, like I said, they wanted to now open the doors for some integration, but like I indicated, they were not prepared for it because the facilities wasn't there. The accommodations wasn't there. You know, when we got on campus, you know, not only had to deal with it within it, within the football program or the athletic, <laughs> oh, excuse me, or within the athletic program, we had to deal with it within the social environment. We didn't have places that we could go. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we made them, we actually made them give us a cottage. At that point in time, they were cottages they had on campus. Give them one of those so we could have our own student union, a place to participate. And we also eventually got them where we took one of the main big buildings on the main road, become a cultural center. So, and that's actually where we actually developed our own church because there was no churches. Churches, that's uh, right. Okay, on campus, okay. So, um, so that's how we started to, uh, 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 you know, force the university to understand that, you know, you got to give us facilities and some comfort level. And then also within that same time period, we also just, just developed, you know, black studies programs. Mm -hmm. on campus, um, which is, I think at this point in time, uh, it's probably about 50 years old now uh, that we established at that point in time around 1970 as well. So there was a lot of social unrest, you know, at that point in time you had, uh, you know, you had Kent State, the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you had, there was a bunch of stuff going on in 1970, okay? Uh, and we were just a microcosm of the unrest and discomfort that we had within the society that we had to deal with uh, at that point in time. So, you know, and that's when, you know, we got the labels of, you know, now we militants, um, we're troublemakers. Um, we got labeled as malcontents, you know, ungrateful, you know, those were the labels that were put upon us. Of course they were. 
right? Because we were not being conformative to what they thought we should be. Right, and you're not being compliant in their in their eyes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, So, go ahead. No, so I guess I have a couple of questions. Sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. I, I think I read that um, Greg said that when they were talking about like um, uh, black studies and yes. that the coaching staff called them in and they said, you either got to be a football player, or you got to be black. Right. You got to, you know, so you got, and then I also wanted to know um, a little bit about how you established better medical treatment also, because I know that there was also like, they had a gynecologist that was. Yeah. Yes, for the yes, team yes. or something like that. So, yes. and and that's not even that's, to me that is unfathomable that you have a gynecologist. Well, I, I, I'll tell you the reason why. Okay, mm-hmm. when that comment when that comment was stated to Greg, Greg' response to them was, "Coach, I'm only going to be a football player for a short period in my life, but I'm going to be black all of it." That's right. Okay, that was his response to them. Because we had we had to make them understand, okay, as part of those the the concept that they believe that you know they could call us a boy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and you know and we said you know you can't call me a boy, <clears throat> especially in that time period, right? Because that was a negative contents. It had negative contents to it. We wouldn't accept it. Well, we call everybody boy. I don't care what you call everybody else. But you're not calling you me call that. call me by my name. Mm-hmm. My name is John, not boy. So that was a conflict right there, okay? That we are supposed to accept that. And we chose not to. Mm-hmm. Under, the, under the medical treatment, uh, you would see that uh, uh, the... The, the main medical doctor, as you had indicated, was a gynecologist. Not an orthopedic, which you would think right. would be the head uh, doctor as it relates to athletes. Even a GP for that matter, I mean. Right, 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 <laughs> right. Because it was more of a thing that, um, you, know, you know, looking out for our welfare was not what that was. Right. I'm going to give you a a few examples of that. Um, uh, this this doctor was part of the program uh, because he had a relationship with the coach. Ben Swaswaller played golf. Okay. Okay. Need not say anymore. I get it. Okay. You know where I'm going. But I sure it. do. I sure hey, do. You want to be part of the country club? Hey, this is where you can get to it. Okay. Yep. But <clears throat> there were there were a couple of incidents that um, that happened that you know even even scared me to death. Okay. Mm-hmm. In a sense of what happened. Um, and what we when we said better medical treatment, people don't don't misunderstand. Understand, we weren't just talking for ourselves. We we're talking about for everybody. Everybody, mm-hmm. okay. Uh, one of the players had knee surgery, and 
he was like, I want to say 6'3", 185, somewhere in that, 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 that category. They forgot a pin in his knee. Oh, God. And he developed an infection. So they had to, you know, and so with that, you know, they had to go in and get it out and do it. This guy went from 185, I believe, down to 135. Whoa. Okay. That's what that infection did to him. Whoa. I walked in, I walked in, this is, I, and I know what, what Pilo, what his technique was. I walked in the training room one day looking for, you know, uh, uh, some assistance. And when I walked in, you know, I walked in quietly and I saw Pilo drawing fluid from one of my teammates' knee. Mm -hmm. Long needle going inside the joint. Uh, I mm. was looking at it, okay? And he was pulling the fluids out. But what, what got me was when he did that, I saw the guy's eyes in his head roll back in his head. Scared me to death. I backed out of there. I didn't turn away. I backed because I didn't want him to know I was there. Right, 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 right. So <laughs> I said, uh, I'm not letting this dude ever touch me, okay? Uh, one of my other teammates had basically fractured his wrist. And um, he, uh, at the end of practice, Pilo was shaking his wrist and hand. And then he made the comment to Swarzwaller, I think he needs to go to the hospital. So he said, okay, we'll get him to the hospital. They go to the hospital. The orthopedics say to him, did, did, did they do something to your hand? No. And he says, well, Pilo shook it. The comment from the orthopedic was, that butcher, they call him a butcher. That he's a he's still a friend of mine, and he he tells his story whenever we, we need him. He will voice his story. His wrist has never been the same since. Really? Never, he can't bend it because it was more like what they said was when he shook it, he shook all the bone material around, and so it basically was milk in there, oh, and he made no. it work. So, uh, uh, and you know, and, and his name is Kevin, and he will tell you today that, in, you know, after I saw him, uh, I'm, I'm going to say maybe a couple of years ago, last I last saw him, he still can't bend his wrist because of. Oh my of gosh! It. So, <clears throat> the thing that I'm saying to you is that the medical treatment that was probably the harshest wasn't happening to us. This happened to everybody. Okay. Because we didn't trust them. So I don't go to nobody I don't trust. And uh, 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 so that was in itself uh, detrimental to the program that even the doctors uh, outside of the system didn't like the treatment that we were receiving in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are two examples of uh, uh, the appeal of uh, the gynecologist that was 
And, 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 and at that point in time, let me say this, we didn't know that. Right. That, uh, okay. okay. We didn't know he was a gynecologist. Okay. He had a doctor in front of his right. name. So you thought it was a doctor because right, right. why else would they bring somebody else? Right. Why would they bring and, somebody else that's not qualified, right? Well, you would think you would have you know, somebody that would be able to understand and do what we needed, you know, as 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 as, uh, as athletes. Right. And you know, so uh, and David Mark, who wrote the book "Leveling the Playing Field," mm -hmm, mm -hmm. found that out. So we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, thirty-five years later. Okay, that's how we find out that he was a. Because the David Mock's research, he found out because he when he told us when he was putting together the book, he said, you guys ain't gonna believe this. But Pilo was a gynecologist. And he found that in his obituary. Oh my gosh. That's how he found out. It was in his obituary. So that's, that's a really long time after the fact finding out. Right, right. After all the damage he did. To after everybody. all the damage he did, right. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you know, uh, those those issues uh, compounded themselves, mm -hmm. and you know, gave us you know where you know what's this all about up in here? Okay, this is supposed to be a top notch program. Mm -hmm. With you know, you would think top notch professionals, and it's it's like running a a high school program. You wouldn't think that would be happening on the high school level. And that's where, you know, now, now things are starting to, to fall into place in relationship to what, what's really going on here. Mm -hmm. uh, and like you said, you know, there, there were four demands that we made in 1970. Uh, one being uh, better medical treatment, and you can see why. Yep. Um, we look for better academic support. And what I mean by that, uh, and these things that I'm, we're talking about um, were, would become standard operating procedure. Mm -hmm, better mm -hmm. academic support, okay? Um, you know, we, you would have, when you go on a away game, um, you would have classes you may miss that Friday. Right come back and boom, you know, so, you know, you need somebody to advise you what went on in class that particular day, whatever. So for the, for the white ball players, they had academic advisors. For the black ball players, there were student advisors. So in other words, I had to find somebody who was in my class right. to, get, to get the instruction for that day. White ball players had academic advisors that always took care of whatever those needs were. Okay. So we're in two different, two different rooms. Supposed to be getting the same uh, 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 service, but no, we were getting the opposite. Then we talked about merit. That people who would would be uh, um, um, who played or on the team. We always assumed that the best players would be the starting players. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was not necessarily so. They also did certain things that would create animosity 
or you know uh, discomfort within the environment. And I'm going to give you an example of that. Uh, if we go do an away game, you have a depth chart that you put up. And normally you would have depth chart at the beginning of the week. You would have a first, second, and third position for each one of those positions, okay? When you go to see who's going to be on the travel squad, you may be one or two during the week. But when you go to look at the travel squad, mm -hmm. you might be number three. So in other words, you might be practicing with the first and second team, but by the time you look at the travel squad, you would be number three. So you wouldn't go make that trip for that away game. That ah, happened a lot. I see. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, but you come back next week, you might be number two. What's up with that? Okay, so you started next week, even though you were three on, on, on Friday, you might be two on Monday. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, it's, you know, it was like putting players against each other. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> so, it was more of a conflict within the system itself when, you know, you're thinking that your starter or you even second squad and find out, no, there's going to be some dislike. So it depends on what was the flavor of the week on whether or not you would be on the travel squad or even starting that particular week. It just seems to me that, you know, just to get you there or to recruit you, you were promised all these things. But yes. then once you get there, it's something completely different. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and it probably, and while it was happening at Syracuse and while you were doing something about it, it was probably happening across campuses all across the country. Oh, absolutely. It was this, what we experienced wasn't, wasn't new, mm -mm. but what we experienced was widespread. Right. There was a, a number of, uh, of, of, of programs throughout the country that experienced the same thing that we were experienced. But I think when you look at it in relationship to, um, you know, what we did, um, you know, we didn't just holler discrimination, we showed it, mm -hmm. okay? As I stated, you know, the, the four demands, the, the third was merit. The fourth one, which was the one that was supposed to, so supposedly, that was so explosive, let me say that, was you need to hire a black coach. Mm -hmm. All hell broke loose. Because the comments back was, you can't tell us who to hire. No, we're not telling you to hire. We're just saying you need to. Because we need someone who's going to be an advocate for Plus, us. Right. Okay. And for that, you know, you you just need <coughs> excuse me. You know, because we're trying to get you to understand. Stop calling me a boy. Mm -hmm. Or other de de derogatory things that were said. And uh and they were said, but they was not only said at the black ball play, they were said at some of the white ball players. Okay. 
They're right. calling them all types of ethnic names as well. Depending on, you know, where the ethnicity was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. They would get, you know, called what it was, you know, a WAP or whatever, you know. Uh, I'm just, you know, and and, and I've gotten uh, guys I played with that experienced that. And at this point in time, we're willing to talk about it as well, you know. So, you know, it was more of a thing that, uh, but that black coach turned it into a, a racial issue. No, it was supposed to be an understanding. We're not, we're not trying to become racial here. We're just mm-hmm. trying to understand that, you know, what you what we're saying, you're not listening to. And you you're not giving up, <clears throat> you're not giving us the comfort level that we need to feel comfortable in this particular environment. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you know, using them, you know, them off words and names and stuff, I ain't feeling this. Okay. So that's what we we went and decided that these are going to be the issues that we want you to confront. As I indicated to you, the, the first three of those, and I, I, and I, and I, I'm going to say it this way: we, they say we demand it. I say this at that point in time, and and, and where we were in, in that era. Black folks couldn't demand anything, mm-hmm. okay? We may request, but they took it personal by saying, we demand. No, we just said, you need to, okay? Mm-hmm. We didn't have we can't demand anything, okay? But we can request it. And they took that to be as though, okay, this is, okay, this is the, this is the wedge that we're going to put in to create the environment that had, that took it to the level of where it is, mm-hmm. it was at that point in time. So that, go, go ahead, ahead, please. Go no, ahead. no, please. No, no. Finish your sentence. No, go ahead, go ahead. no I, I guess I wanted to ask um, a little bit about. You know, there were actually nine of you. So how did it become the Syracuse Eight, though? Well, let me let me back you up on that one. Okay, mm-hmm. there's. That's a misnomer, okay? And the reason why it's a misnomer, because, and, and this is the thing that we have to rectify. Um, what happened was in 2005, when we broke the story, when we went back to the university to um, uh, tell our story, and uh, when we went back to tell our story, one of the players that was uh, discharged from the team in 1968, okay, for what they call medical reasons, there's a claim that there was discriminatory and whatever. I- I'm not going to get into it, but the fact is um, there- there's a version, there's two versions. Okay. Okay. In the in the two versions, are are are, are well. It's, it's, he said. He said, and he uh-huh. did. He did. Okay. I, I'm not gonna get into it because, you know, uh, I was That's there. Fine. Okay, I was there, but 
what happened was this particular ninth player that they keep talking about, when the comment was made, <clears throat> the newspaper got it wrong. That's not true. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's not true. This player was dismissed in 1968. We didn't uh... boycott the 70. You can't be a part of something that you're not, if you're not program. present. That's right. That's okay. right. Now I get it. Yep. You see what I'm saying to you? I sure do. Okay. That was stated for an accommodation. Got it. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that was an accommodation. Enough you said. Know? I get it all okay. together. All right. But I'm going to be real with you, my friend. Here. Okay. Please do. All right. I didn't agree with it. Okay. But he was with the class. There was eight of us. At that point in time, there were five juniors. Okay. Two sophomores and one freshman. Well, no, me, let me, when we boycotted in the 70s, yeah, that, that would have been uh, my junior year, that me and Greg's junior year. There were five seniors and one sophomore. Okay. Okay. Uh huh. That's your eight. That's eight. Mm-hmm. Well, he was with he was with the class of the five seniors. They were teammates and classmates. Okay. okay? okay. Mm-hmm. That was done in accommodation because they felt he was wrong. I said, well, I don't have a problem with that, but it should not be a part of the Syracuse eight. If he wasn't even, if he wasn't no longer a student. Right. If you, no, he was still in school because he was still, okay. He was still on scholarship. Okay. Mm -hmm. They didn't, but he was not in the program. Oh, I see the difference. Okay. Got it. Okay. He was not in the program. Okay. You will not find his name anywhere in the program. Okay. In, in 19, not even 1969, he wasn't even on the team. So, because they felt that he was discriminated against, which to me has been unproven, okay? It's what he said, but it's not what we know, okay? Mm-hmm. So, I have always said um, that uh, if you're a journalist, and you do research, then you should know who was and who was not involved mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. And I'm and the reason why I'm gonna say this to you now that I, I don't have I, I'm I'm I am who I am, okay. Um when David Mark wrote the book, when he wrote the book. That's when that nine came up. And we expressed to David, there is no nine. But that was quoted at a time when we, like I said, we had just told our story. Mm-hmm. Now being, and, and the story was me, and the story was now stated <coughs> in 2000. <clears throat> Excuse me. In two thousand six, is when we received the chancellor's medal. 
Okay. okay. Yes. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. They want Ron to be a part of that. And I, my comment was, why? And they, you know, we I'm outnumbered. Okay. Everybody, this is what, so I could have slammed all this, but I chose not to because it was our time. Right. To be recognized for what we did. So, but if you read any document, report, or whatever, mm-hmm. you will never find his name. Okay. I only saw it maybe two places. Every other place just has eight. Right. Right. Okay. Now, the reason why I said with David Mark, because David came to ask a question. And there was some, some mix-ups, and I'm not going to get into the details of it, but there was allegations made, okay, mm-hmm. that my roommate was number nine. And we had to explain to David that's not true, okay, where we had to get him to understand. And we said, and I said to David, tell me where you find Ron's name at. And he came back and he said, can't find it. He said, here's your answer. Because you can't be a part of something if you wasn't a part of it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, in the documentation, and I've, and I've done interviews, I've done, I've done, I've done, you know, articles as well. And one of the things that I tried to make them understand without, you know, we, we try to, we're trying to be diplomatic here, but I'm tired of being diplomatic because it's an untruth here. Okay? Right. I say to them, is this here? If you can show me where his name is anywhere, then I'll go with it. But you're not going to find it anywhere mm-hmm. because it's not there. When David finished his research, he confronted Ron and said, Ron, I can't find your name anywhere. And he said, well, then this is when excuses came out. And I'm not going <laughs> to get into excuses. Okay. But, yeah. okay. But mm-hmm. what I'm saying to you, and I've said, I've said to all those who interviewed me or asked me to be part of an interview and whatever, I've said to them this here. Look at what what you're saying. You're saying that they got the number wrong. Well, if they got the number wrong, why didn't we change the number? Why didn't we call it the Syracuse Nine if we got it wrong, if they got it wrong? Because they didn't get it wrong. It's called the Syracuse Eight because eight black ball players walked off that field at the same time. Eight walked off. There was no nine that walked off. So you can't walk off and be a part of something if you're not one of those who walked off. Mm-hmm. There is no nine. Right, and you would have easily corrected that as soon as they said it. We, 
Like as I, soon as this I, first I, happened, right? As soon as you got right, labeled, right, you would have said, right. wait a minute, there are nine of us. And that's the reason yeah. why I said, let me ask this question because right. it seems like there's a discrepancy here. And that's why I was like, I got to ask this. Right. No, and you know what? And like I said to you, Bert, is this here. There is no place even David Mark had to come to the conclusion that there is no nine. And that's why I make the comment to anybody that interviews me. Well, there was nine. I said, they, well, how could it be nine? It's called the Syracuse eight. If there was a nine, we would have changed the number. Mm -hmm. The book would have been titled Syracuse nine. It's called the Syracuse eight because that's what it is. That's what it was, exactly. That's, that's, that's what it exactly. is. That's exactly. So there is no nine. And I'm just, I'm a little tired of it now in the sense of, of trying to explain something that should not have been necessarily to explain. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad that you clarified that. I really okay. am. Okay. And, and so uh, when we went to, uh, you know, to get you to, when we decided to finally go through with the boycott, mm -hmm. uh, it was, because we were basically denied um, that opportunity when it was supposedly, we thought, rectified. In April of that year, uh, 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 with, with the spring practice, uh, when we were told that we could return to the team, mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, we had to go over to the field house and, you know, get ready to be reinstated. When we got there, and there is a picture of us, it's four of us, at the practice field that day. Mm -hmm. And th then we were told, because the chancellor told Swarthwell, put them back on the team, okay? When we got up in there, here came the trickery. They told us that we were academically uneligible that day. And that, you know, we had to pass physicals and that some of us was academically ineligible. Mm -hmm. So basically <clears throat> we were now, uh, I was considered academically ineligible. Okay, uh, and it was like I want to say three others were also out of the eight. Um, then some had then could the physical aspect of it as well. There was really only one player that they really wanted back. That was my roommate, Greg Allen. Greg Allen. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's who they wanted back. I was we was even more surprised they didn't even want Al. And he was a bull in the China process. He was an awesome fullback. But they wasn't, uh, you know, they were basically being real hesitant with him, but the one they wanted was Greg. And so, um, but Greg came to the conclusion and he made the comments to them that they invited him back to camp. And Greg believed, he said, well, what about the others? Well, you know, they're being so 
Greg said, well, you know, we boycotted for the same reasons. So if they're not coming back, I'm not coming back. So Greg chose to join us, even though he could have gone back and become a part of the Syracuse 8 boycott. That's what all hell broke loose. Because now we're looking at, you know, the the, the blacks, they call us the blacks. Mm-hmm. That's, okay. Um, you know, uh, 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 being, you know, we're being basically uh, disloyal. Okay. We, you know, we should, we should, we should be accommodating. We should, you know, be grateful that, you know, this is what's materialized. But nothing had changed at that point. We're still fighting uphill battle with that. And so, um, you know, that's when the boycott went into full bore. And when it went into full bore is when, you know, now there's a determination of, um, you know, what we were being called, you know, as I said, you know, we were mm-hmm. now ungrateful and all this other crazy uh, language that was used to describe who we were. But at that point in time, just to be clear, uh, we were 19, 20, and 21-year-old individuals. I was 20 years old in 1970 when I boycotted. So, you know, based on that 21 rule, you know, an adult at 21 and whatever. Right, right, I, right. I, I became an adult a year earlier in 19, and when I was 20 years old, because I made an adult to me, an adult decision that would have, have an impact on my life and my career. And so it was a life-changing event. I think a lot of us always look for what's that life-changing event? Yes. In our journey. Yes. That was my life-changing event in my journey, you know. So <clears throat> and so with that, I in turn, you know, put on the blinders and started to participate and be fully in- involved in you know, uh, uh, what do we do from here? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had to fight uh, on all levels. The media was quite nasty. You know, they wasn't on our side because, you know, if, if you if you ever get a chance at some point that, you know, with the derogatory names that we were called, the media was, you know, they were savage on us. You know, that, you know, we, you know, we tried to work within the system but we also uh, felt the system wasn't working with us. And so I, I, I have a, a moment in my, uh, 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 my journey at that point in time when um, I um, came to realize that um, this wasn't comfortable. And I think we all experienced that in relationship to, you know, uh, you know, what was we giving up um, because of it? And, you know, luckily we were able to maintain our scholarships because there were some talks about doing that, but they were advised that that may look a little bit treacherous if you go ahead and take this scholarship, okay, from, um, you know, uh, because we didn't agree with the system nor the policies of the system itself. Right. Uh, my my turning event for me was when I called my mother. 
I was in the dorm and I called her and I said to I said, Ma, I don't know much how much more of this stuff I'm gonna take. I can take because these people are crazy up here. Mm-hmm. And with a mother's intuition, these are the words she said to me. Then come home. That's all she said. Mm-hmm. Then come home. And then all of a sudden, my uncle, which is the one we talked about earlier, um, was coming in. Her baby brother was coming in. And, you know, she, she said to him, your nephew's on the phone. Um, you know, some problems up in there, up in Syracuse. So he gets on the phone. And I described to him briefly what was going down. He says to me, I'll be up there tomorrow to pick you up. <laughs> and at the end of that, I said bye to him and her. And I sat there in the phone booth. Remember, we didn't have cell phones and all that. Other nope, stuff. I know it. Okay. So I sat there for about maybe five, 10 minutes. And I called back home and I said, Ma, I ain't coming. I said, this is my junior year. If I get this up, I'll never get my degree. And so I'm going to lose out all this because of this. Mm -hmm. I said, no, I'm going to fight this. So you talk, I'm not coming. I hung the phone up. And that's when I put put myself in full gear. I'm getting ready for the battle. My roommate Greg had the same conversation with his father. And his father replied to him, That's gonna you that's gonna be your decision. You're gonna have to live with that. But I'll support you in whatever decision you make. Mm-hmm. We buckled in, full steam ahead. This is what we got, we fighting for. Because when we made the decision to move forward with, with the boycott, that, that culture center I talked about, we had, a, we had our own church in that culture center. We all stood up that day in church and individually commented on why. And one of my comment was, I'm doing this so nobody else will ever have to go through this. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm doing this, okay? So my vision was, I'm in the doorway with both arms spread open against the doors, making sure they don't close. That's right. And whatever sacrifice I have to make, that's what I'll have to make. But we shouldn't have to keep going through this crap as we do today. So <clears throat> those three words have always lived with me. But understanding a mother whose dreams were Mm -hmm. 
I have a child that they most people don't didn't understand. How do you get a son in Syracuse? Mm-hmm. And she and she and, and when when they say you have a child in Syracuse, and she her head would be high up. That's right. Okay. Particularly since she only had a seventh grade education. Right. Okay. And when when people heard that my son was, her son was a Syracuse, uh, 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 at that point, and even now, even a Syracuse grad, that she would look at them, watch their jaw hit the table. Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out, how did you have- How did you do that? Mm -hmm. How did you do that? Okay. Uh, Because my mother was a domestic. She did domestic. Okay. Mm-hmm. She also did catering. My mother worked seven days a week. And that's one of the reasons why I, I said to you earlier that I was thinking about quitting school. Because I saw that. I lived it. And it hurt. <laughs> Don't you worry, good people. Stay tuned. The No Good People podcast will be back with a part two for this episode. The No Good People podcast is co-produced by Kennedy Gale Productions and So Very Vera Productions. Music produced by Trevor Pitts of Pitts Campaign Music. The No Good People podcast can be streamed through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other selected streaming services.